my name is Jared Anderson. This is a podcast about consciousness and transformation, where we explore the nature of consciousness and how we as humans transform. I speak with teachers, coaches, mystics, authors, and others in the transformational space. These conversations are designed to support your own growth and evolution. Welcome. Hello, everybody. My name is Jared Anderson, and I have the amazing pleasure to talk to one of my favorite human beings, Karen Janke. She is the chair of the Consciousness and Transformative Studies program at National University and was the program that I got my master's in and was lucky enough to work with her because I worked at the university as well. So I got a lot of contact with her and just developed such deep affection for this human being while I was working there. It was amazing to be able to have this much access to her. And she is just a brilliant, loving, radiant human being, which you will see here in a minute when we jump into it. So we're going to talk about kind of just really more or less consciousness. And we'll get into like setting up the conversation here in a minute. But before we do, Karen, say hello. And if there's anything else you wanted to mention about yourself, that would, oh, I know that sounds great. If there's anything else you want to mention, please let me know. Well, thank you, Jared, for such a generous introduction. And we have had many conversations over the years. So it's nice to do this one in a different format. Yeah, many minds spark together. So let's see where they go. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's always so much excitement whenever I get on with you. I'm just so eager to get into it. So great. Let's jump in and let's just start by defining what consciousness is, even though there's no totally agreed upon definition. It's a very troubling concept. I mean, science calls consciousness the hard problem of science. So let's get in and and just talk about that to, to start our conversation off today. Yeah. So speaking of science calling consciousness the hard problem, we could say that science can't even talk without consciousness. Right. right. It can't even formulate the notion of the hard problem of consciousness without the reality of consciousness. And I think it's such a pervasive, all pervasive reality consciousness is that we don't tend to examine it because mm. it's, it's well, okay. So jumping back and forward, a couple of definitions that people sometimes use single word definitions. One is sentience. Mm. Another one is awareness. Mm -hmm. I like to talk about consciousness as the space in which perception takes place. Hmm. I love that. And we could say, you know, without perception, I mean, everything that we experience and know is mediated through perception or is mediated through consciousness. So it's just this all pervasive phenomenon that we tend to take for granted. And I like to use a metaphor in addition to those definitions, because I think the metaphor just has many levels of meaning of illumination for this slippery idea of consciousness. So my metaphor, my favorite metaphor is the fish swimming in the ocean. Mm -hmm. So the fish is swimming in the ocean and it takes the water for granted. Right. This all pervasive environment in which its very life depends is invisible. It's taken for granted. 
Yeah. It's just assumed. And consciousness is the same. It's this all, we could think of it as an all pervasive environment in which we live, move and have our being, right? So the fish is not thinking about the the water Mm -hmm. until say the fish is swimming along near the surface of the ocean and lightning strikes the water. Hmm. And even we can imagine that even the fish with its simpler form of consciousness, presumably, sees something different, something registers that's fresh for the fish. On the other hand, the fish is swimming and comes into a, one of those plastic trash bubbles. Oh, geez. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That one. Maybe gets entangled or just the fish is going to have another type of experience, even the fish, right? Right. That suddenly its life is entangled or it can't breathe or the plastic is over its face, whatever horrific thing we're imagining is happening. The toxic experience of toxicity is going to register in, in the fit or it's in an oil spill. The fish swims in an oil spill. I mean, you could see this. I've seen birds that were drenched. I saw a bird, an image of a bird uh, that had been drenched in oil, a a water bird and the look of dumbfoundedness, like, Mm -hmm. you know, on the face of a bird. So we know even animals that we share this planet with are when they're having experiences of toxicity, it does something to their consciousness. So either of those experiences at the human level or at the animal level, the experience of enlightenment, an experience of light, an infusion of light or illumination Mm -hmm. and the experience of toxicity, trauma, those two types of experiences pushed toward the, you know, the extreme ends of the continuum tend to wake up consciousness, tend to make, oh, it's not just this thing I'm swimming in that I can take for granted. And I, so that is the metaphor that I like because what brings consciousness out of just this implicit phenomenon to something yeah. that's intrinsically of interest, worth <laughs> studying, worth thinking about, worth engaging with in a more active way, as opposed to just a background that I live and breathe in, but I don't pay any attention to. I love the metaphor and I think it works a lot. And it implies that the universe itself is consciousness, that consciousness is truly a ubiquitous force, kind of implying also like a more of a panpsychist kind of approach versus a scientific materialist would state that the neuronal network of our brains are the things that creates consciousness. And I notice like when I talk to some of my more scientific reductionist types of friends, if if they know the word panpsychist and you throw that around, it's sort of like, oh no, we just stepped in it almost. And it's this bias in certain sectors to study it in some ways. And that's a little bit of a different direction, but I love your metaphor because it does feel like it's so hard to see consciousness because like you said, you just take it for granted. It's everywhere all the time, right? The panpsychic idea, I guess, is from primarily philosophy, but this notion that the universe intrinsically has consciousness or Mm -hmm. A spawns consciousness. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just spawn material reality. There's some scientific basis to make that claim, which is that 
even particles seem to process information. Yeah. Like, are you talking about like the whitehead notion of like prehension or those types of ideas? I'm actually talking about kind of a living systems and physics idea from science that we know that particles, you know, track if they've been together and they're separated, mm-hmm. they have, there's some knowledge, some information processing right. all the way down to the level of the particle. And we could think of that information processing at the root of physical reality as the simplest form of consciousness in the universe, Mm -hmm. then we know that, you know, as evolution continues beyond particles to spawn matter, Mm -hmm. you know, this notion of sentience of animals having sentience, the fish, you know, has sentience. And I do think there that the complexity of the neural structures in the human brain, and as you go, you know, if you want to think of a chain of being, as those neural structures get more complex, clearly consciousness undergoes a morphing to become more complex as well. So I wouldn't di- diss the neural structure right. that lets us have this conversation and do other very sophisticated things. But I would also say it's there's no matter that without information processing. Right. That's kind of the beginning of a, a basis for thinking about consciousness, that, that even particles process information. There's two concepts that I want to marry potentially in this conversation, which is the we space and trauma. And in reference to how do we understand consciousness? So when we talk about the we space, it's the inner subjective space between two centers of consciousness between you and I, there's you, there's your internal experience, there's me and my internal experience, and then there's a sort of shared internal experience between the two of us. Um, In integral theory, it's the upper left and lower left quadrants. And in sort of a cultural kind of phenomenon, the rigid scientific academic spheres have a very toxic we space with many of the mystic or any spiritual kinds of spheres too. And there's just this toxic relationship that happens between the two that doesn't allow a lot of space to have a conversation to actually, that doesn't have like more of a space to plumb the wisdom from each of its sources and actually come up with synthesis and some synergy to actually create some novelty. I was listening to Meet the Press this morning before our conversation, and Michio Kaku was talking about he's really working on his grand unified theory that combines the four forces of nature, the strong and weak, uh, electromagnetism and gravity. I'm forgetting, but the four big bases of reality. And in preparation for thinking this, I was even thinking like, what if the unified theory is this version of consciousness or something along there that like the disconnect in science is to just not be able to see the water that we're swimming in. And because there's a toxic relationship, it creates a blind spot and a myopia to say, we're not going to look at consciousness as something that is outside of, of the neuronal network. We're going to see it as a materialistic kind of function. There's not a big question there. Where I wanted to go with this was just basically 
this toxic relationship in relation to trauma. I love what you mentioned about how trauma and spaciousness has people have these moments of illumination that through the plumbing of trauma, it actually creates opportunity. And one of the phrases that I've used that I actually got from you and I've still been using to this day is our greatest gifts come from our deepest wounds. And I wonder if we can actually start to plumb and engage in the cultural conversation of the traumatic past of this group of people and this group of people who have fought for decades and decades and decades, the intellectuals, the the people who bring intellectual rigor, to actually meet with the people who bring spiritual rigor. A lot of these monks who have really plumbed consciousness, why can't we bring this together? And I think that there is a cultural opportunity for something to emerge that is similar to an individual, that if we actually engage in our trauma, that that becomes the catalyst for some real transformation. Yeah. I mean, I think there has to be an awakening of consciousness with term we often use where people get curious about, at least at the initial awakening where people get curious about their own consciousness, about their own filters of perception. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I said, I think the trauma on the one hand and enlightenment on the other are probably the two biggest awakeners of consciousness. The metaphor of space for consciousness is used a lot in the mystic traditions then by the Indian gurus who have, as you said, devoted so much of their life to observing their own consciousness. And we know that trauma, which most of us have in varying degrees at this stage in our history, human history, trauma seems to be almost a ubiquitous experience. Yeah. And trauma creates a contraction in consciousness. It creates a narrowing of consciousness. And your invitation, I think, is to work with that, right? To work with the contraction in, in the body and in consciousness. We could say it creates a contraction in body consciousness. Yeah. In fact, one of my teachers, Judith Weaver, gave the example. She said, if you, there, there was an experiment done where a single cell was pricked with like a, whatever they pricked it with, you know, it's very tiny mm -hmm. and the cell contracted and then expand, you know, expanded back to its normal state. Yep. It went through a brief contraction, but if you prick that cell repeatedly, it holds the contraction. Oh, wow. So, you know, I mean, at a cellular level, we know we contract when there's an assault. Right. And of course, at a bigger level of a, of a whole organism, we contract when there's a, an assault or a threat of an assault. So then our consciousness has this narrowing. And I'm thinking about, you know, the reductionistic mindset is a kind of narrowing of consciousness, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. A person is trapped inside that narrowing and maybe lacking an experience of expansion of consciousness. So we could think of consciousness as having this tendency to contract mm. under pressure or an assault, a violation, and it also has a capacity to, to expand. And I've had experiences, and I'm sure you have too, that have shown me that 
human consciousness can expand to the far reaches of the cosmos. That's how far out we can expand our, yeah. our consciousness. And also it can become very, very constricted. It's almost like the black holes in the universe get exist within us, you know, or can exist right. within us. Yep. So what's interesting, if you notice that your consciousness at sometimes is narrow and contracted, myopic, and other times is wide, expansive, loving, open, spacious. Okay, that's an interesting phenomenon right there. It's not one thing or the other. It's this pliable thing, medium totally. that is like a rubber band. You know, it's, it expands and contracts. It's much more pleasant to be in an expansive state. Yeah. So, but I think then we can talk about the history, you know, where humanity is at this moment in history. If you think about people having trauma that has not been digested, hmm and metabolized and liberated, right? Mm -hmm, Then mm -hmm. you have people running around who have contracted consciousness. And that contraction, you know, creates all kinds of, can create all kinds of behaviors that are less than optimal. Yeah. You know, whether they're self-inflicted or other inflicted, right? Mm -hmm. So when your trauma reality becomes your norm and you start to think that it's normal to perceive the world in this contracted way, that's that's problematic, you know? Yeah. Just to take an example, someone who's a suicide bomber taking their own life out and along with other people in a violent act, that's a very contracted consciousness where there aren't many possibilities. Right. The best possibility is to, you know, is to take down life, my own and as many others as I can. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not a neutral thing whether people... And in terms of our behavioral world and our social world, it's not neutral whether people are living from a traumatized, contracted consciousness or whether they have attended to that experience and allowed the liberatory energies to be released. And so then our, you know, we have a collective world with a lot of people running around with a traumatized consciousness, with an unexamined traumatized consciousness enacting the effects of that, you know, in the public we spaces. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that the polarization in consciousness of me versus you, us versus them, that tendency to polarize is also an effect of trauma. Right. Right. Where suddenly the other becomes a threat. Yep. And so, you know, again, we've all had that experience but is it our final experience or do I learn, do I have access to unified expansive uh, experiences that help me see that that's not the way I want to live. I don't want to live identified in a polarized consciousness. I want to, I know that's a limited way of being and a limited way of perceiving and that it's not the ultimate reality. Yeah. Boy, it speaks to so much going on politically right now. <laughs> but- yeah. I love what you say about the expansion of consciousness is a releasing into like more space and trauma narrows. And I would assert that in a traumatic act, a lot of times it implies violence. So we'll just use violence as the example, but the aggressor is actually experiencing trauma simultaneously with 
the victim. If I am violently attacking someone else, I am experiencing trauma, maybe not just as much as them, but I'm also experiencing that. And I think that right now, what we have in this country is both sides in a traumatized state, just to reduce it down to the simplistic left-right kind of argument, where all sides are having a traumatic experience and it is narrowing our focus. And when an individual likes wants to move through trauma, wants to actually do the healing work to release that trauma, they have to look at it. They have to be with it and actually touch it. To fully touch any trauma in your past, it releases, it starts to release. And the more that you can touch it, the more it releases its grasp on you. And I wonder if, yes, it's very uncomfortable, but with so much of what's happening in society right now, people forcing us as a people to look at what we've done. And so I'm hoping that what I see is that we're having an expansion of consciousness with so many individuals, but I'm also very interested in the expansion of consciousness on the collective. And I'm an American. I love this country in a lot of ways, but I love the planet and humans in general more. But I just think that, you know, America needs to really sit and be with some of its traumatic past. And I think that we're we're on this razor's edge of whether or not we're going to make it because we've got a lot of epigenetic trauma to deal with. We have a lot of trauma in the field. And I just hope that not just with what we were mentioning before, with like a scientific versus mysticism kind of synergy, I hope that we can actually start to take on the practice, all of us, all humans, take on the practice of getting more present with our wounds. Mm-hmm. And boy, I don't see that a lot happening. And I see a whole large sector of people avoiding it. And that's what a lot of times the media likes to focus on. But whenever you just barely look under the covers, you see a whole massive amount of popular like people that are actually engaging in this activity of really sitting and being present with their wounding. And what I find so fascinating about healing work, when we actually experience transmutation of of these wounds, is that from an expanded state, when I'm sitting in like on my meditation cushion and my back is killing me, when my legs are just sitting, right? Or whatever the practice might be, whenever I'm doing some sort of crazy kundalini yoga kind of practice and my shoulders are burning, there's this switch that happens whenever my consciousness moves from, oh, my shoulders are on fire. There's this threshold that happens in my consciousness where when it becomes an expansive state, all of a sudden that burning in my shoulders moves into bliss. (laughs) It's so interesting, but it's like the notion of pain doesn't have to hurt. (laughs) It's wild when you've never experienced and then you do. And I think that most, if not all of us have had that experience. I just don't know how many of us recognize it. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. If you, you know, if we're labeling a sensation as pain, right? I'm feeling that burning in my shoulder. Oh, the mind goes, oh, that's pain. I don't want it. Right. And then there's that polarization, right? I don't want it. I reject it. But if I can rename it 
as, wow, this is a really interesting, intense sensation. Mm-hmm. Can I be curious about it yeah. as pure sensation, not with a label, take the label off and just explore this burning quality, the heat, whatever. And can I make space for that experience? Can I be present to it? And then, as you said, because there's no more mind body polarization, it becomes something else, an ecstatic experience, a release of energy, a flow of energy, whatever it, it does. And this is the power of presence, yeah. of an observing presence. And going back to your early, earlier point about trauma, the thing that brings relief to trauma or wounding is presence. It's the only thing that really brings relief. Yeah. And we can get that presence. We can go to a therapist and get, learn from a therapist, you know, who's present to our pain. But eventually we need to learn how to just be present to our own pain. Yeah. And it's the only thing that will detox that trauma is presence. So is again, it's a powerful statement about the power of witness consciousness, mm-hmm. power of just witnessing. We don't tend to think about witnessing something as a power. Yeah. It's one of the most phenomenal powers we possess is the power to witness and let what we're witnessing run through our being and something profound shifts when we do that. Yeah, I agreed. It's profound in ourself when we look at ourselves, our relationship with ourselves to be fully present with ourselves. It's the most intoxicating is not the right word. It's the most you want to be a good partner, be present. You want to be a good parent, get present. Just there's something about presence that is, it's sort of the surrender. It's like my mind and ego, my partner comes to me and she's got some problem with something that I did. Okay. Happens all the time, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? The, the classic joke is men want to fix the problem, right? Or she's coming, she's coming to me with not even a problem that I did. She's coming to me with a problem in her life. Right. And it's the, I want to fix it kind of men, women kind of joke. But really what the feminine is wanting is just to be witnessed. It's just the the call for presence. And there's love in that. It's not even just that. I mean, what's the kids like, you know, when kids are like, daddy, watch me, watch me. They just inherently have this wisdom of just be present with me. And it's that yearning and calling for just presence. Mm-hmm. I think it's a beautiful thing. There's a lot of environmental degradation that is extremely concerning. <laughs> I get debilitated whenever I really engage in what's happening in, in nature. Whenever I get present to it, it's literally like when I say I'm debilitated, I notice it almost feels like I'm dying. And what's coming to me right now in this moment is that my presence is showing me you're killing nature or you're at least killing your capacity as humans to be in nature. Mm-hmm. And I'm also present to, we have us, we live in a society that our economy, I don't know, 75, 90% of the economy is based on, we will sell you a product to help you numb out from presence. Mm-hmm. And those, I just wonder how, how we actually create more breakthrough with, some of the most powerful technologies in the world to help us numb out. And now we all, for those of you listening, I just held up my phone, right? This incredibly numbing, 
agent that helps us take away from presence. And so it's just so fascinating to watch the human consciousness on the whole, that there are these opposing forces that are so powerful that we're creating, and yet it still pales in comparison to when a person wakes up, when a person actually starts to deepen their consciousness. And so I'm noticing that these two forces are in a race, you know, the force to not be conscious, to not be present. Mm-hmm. And then the opposite of just more and more people engaging in consciousness, expansive types of activities, mm-hmm. but also in society. I mean, the psychedelic research and liberation is remarkable, but it's not just that. It's all of these various consciousness expansive, call it technologies, whether it's, you know, all of the monks from Tibet coming out or the Native American wisdom traditions, this cross-fertilization and synthesization that's coming out is so fascinating to watch. So fascinating. Yeah, I think this idea that we're in a race, you know, I want to go back to that idea Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. there's a part of humanity that is increasing its waking up and engaging with that and has resources, technology and other traditions, spiritual traditions, teachings to wake up and engage. And then there's a part of humanity that is trying to numb out their experience through products, through drugs, also through whatever means staying busy is Mm -hmm. a great one, you know? Yeah. And you know, I think it's a it's an interesting metaphor for where we're at as a species, and then how that runs up against what we're doing to the planet. Yeah, and which side is going to win the race? I think that what we're doing to the planet is going to create a pressure cooker mm. for humanity. Yeah, and we're starting. And I think you could even argue part of the chaos that we're seeing in collective culture, the tensions and chaos is that people sense we're we're getting into a a pressure cooker situation. Yeah. Yep. Children know, a 5-year-old child knows the planet is not a safe healthy place. Mm-hmm. It's it's pervasive. Uh this awareness that our our future is not guaranteed. Yeah. And so we've got this kind of pressure cooker and I think some of the behaviors that are happening in the collective, you know, say the raid on the capital this grab bag, like people debt the desperation to reclaim an old reality, a former reality that felt safer than the unknown future that doesn't feel very safe. Yeah. And that's an undercurrent, you know, in, I think in, in the human species right now is this sense of whether we're talking about it or not. And the best way to speak about it, I think is that we're collectively going into an initiation crisis for the species. An initiation, if we're going to make it, there has to be a species-wide reckoning Mm. with what does it mean to be a human being or a being on this planet? How can we live within the limits of the planet? How can we accommodate what actually creates healthy systems, healthy living systems? We can't just run roughshod over it. And make it all about human pleasure, right? You know, human resource uh, extracting resources and making that make human beings happy. That yeah. is not the ultimate reality on this planet. And so, 
you know, but I think the, I, th- I think the pressure cooker is going to increase the pressure cr- cooker reality and the, the enactments that happen out of that. Yeah. And we don't know whether, which side is going to win, you know, are more people going to be drawn into the awakening process that you and I value and has been our path or are more people going to be just fuck it. I'm, I'm going to take my goods and go, no, I can't deal with it. I'm just going to do what serves for me personally and forget about the, the we space, you know, our, our survival together. So I I think it's really a time for human species making Yeah, our species. And you said it earlier, you know, we may be growing into being a new species. We have to be a different species than we are if we're going to have a future together. I'm a life coach. And I, so I see so much in the coaching industry and, and I'm very present to the main thing a coach does is hold a person's hand with the things they're not looking at. I just like, I want to create this. I want to create this thing. And I'm like, great. Our job is to help you see the things that you normally look away from at your, in yourself. And that is a, I have tons of resistance. We all have tons of resistance to look at our own crap, our own trauma, our own shame, our own muck. But that is the transformative process of what a coach does is to help you sit, get present, and actually allow something about it to just release. You don't have to do anything about it. There's something, I mean, you know, you can do things about it, but the main job is to just get present. So this conversation, I love it because I just see it so much firsthand. And as you were saying, these old people that are clinging to old institutions, it's, it is this, man, interesting, crazy, crazy race, like we're saying. So, <laughs> so, so fascinating. There's a couple of things you mentioned before the call. I want to make sure we hit them all. And I'm trying to, I'm having a hard time right now recalling if, if we're, it, basically, I wanted to touch on anything that we've missed, like that we want to go somewhere else. I mean, I think we did talk a little bit about we spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, you know, I think here in America right now, we don't have a shared we space right. that is an inviting space for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, we, the term we space is often used to refer to like a smaller setting, like an organizational setting or a group of people that work together. Mm-hmm. And what is the quality of their working relationships that are in that we space? And, you know, the ideal we space, whether it's a small group of people or a large group of people, is one where the well-being of everyone and the well-being of the system are taken into account, are, yeah. are supported. And so we don't have that kind of we space, but we have an unraveling of the we space, even the we space we had before, where certain realities were agreed on as reality, right? Yeah. We don't even have a, a common agreement about reality at this time, which is, is rather frightening. That's how far unraveled the, the collective American we space is. And I think, how do we shift our we space? That's a, that's a big question. How do we shift the collective? Where, where is the leverage point to shift our collective American we space to be something that celebrates everyone's well-being, everyone's life and well-being. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talked earlier about the 
the buildup of trauma in, in the human nervous system, in the human mm-hmm. psyche. I mean, clearly the traumatized psyche is not able to participate in the same way in a we space and yeah. the, unex- the unexamined traumatized psyche. So I think, you know, we're at a personal level working with personal trauma is that needs to become, you know, a human a species-wide undertaking. I've been doing some work with Thomas Hubel. Oh, I love him. And um, the novelty in his teaching it was, is partly that he merges the mystical teachings with this trauma reality of our time that most people are carrying trauma, unexamined trauma, unhealed trauma. But he also holds out the hope with a possibility that it is actually possible as a human being to clear trauma from your nervous system. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. It's actually possible to create a clean, clear nervous system that is not embedded in trauma structure. Yeah. And I don't know, I find that to be, he's the first person I think I've ever heard say that, right? Mm. That it's possible to clear the nervous system. Yep. Through presence, through meditation practices, mindfulness practices, maybe movement practices, a, a series of practices. So this feels like the long road to ask people to do their own personal trauma work. But I just don't, I don't see how, I mean, certainly people can gather who've done their trauma work in their own we spaces, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And presumably the quality of that we space would be more respectful of human well-being yeah. than if you have a we space in which people are interacting who have unexamined trauma and healed trauma and resolved trauma. Yeah. It's a tall order, you know, and I think this is to me where the pressure cooker of the planet is hopefully going to channel more people into doing the trauma work. Yeah. That that is necessary to transform our we spaces. Yeah. It's a really good point. And I don't know any other way either. It's just more individuals have to continue to take on some of this trauma work. I talk, I, I've made it a practice to have conversations with more people who I disagree with, to have more conversations in a loving, respectful way with conservatives. And in the we space, you can feel when someone goes into a traumatic response and it's the subtle, it doesn't have to be this big overt thing. It can be a very subtle notice of closure, but closure, it's basically showing someone that there is a, there is a slight trauma in those places when you can feel just how fast our political discourse can lead to these closures and mm-hmm. man, the left does it just as bad as the right right now with a lot of the social justice warriors just out shaming and condemning and making all the other side wrong instead of having an open and generative, loving, con- more of a conversation, not one that lets people off the hook, but but actually has someone like engage in the what we've been talking about this whole time, which is just more presence. Mm-hmm. I'm present to <laughs> what? 
Congress or the Senate just voted on with, we're not going to take a look at the attack on the Capitol. We're not going to look at that. We're going to vote it away and we're not going to, are you familiar with what I'm referring to? And I am more and more concerned with the conservative right in our country, the recalcitrance and the, the refusal to engage in just this stonewalling. And we're not going to actually do the work to make our country progress in a certain way. It just shows me this. There's an immense amount of trauma on the right. And we, on the left, we oftentimes use that as a cudgel instead of actually get a little bit more compassionate with those on the right. And I've been deeply trying as much as I can to be as loving and kind and generous with them. And, you know, my whole family's conservative. I have like, I have like 25% of my family is liberal. And so it's, and I also live in a very red state. So I'm very present to the political dynamics of what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. And when I look at, for instance, Donald Trump, can you see a more traumatized person? It is <laughs> like, holy cow, it's crazy. Yeah. So I think we have to back up and say, okay, if we're making this plea or case for people to do their own trauma work, what are the conditions that bring a person to do trauma work? Good. Yeah, good right? point. What are, what are the prior conditions that have to be met? And I think one of them is, if people are on an edge of survival in mm -hmm. survival mode, it's very hard to do trauma work, Yep. right? Because the trauma is about survival. The trauma puts you in survival mode. Many traumas, you feel the threat of your own life, you know, yeah. at, at some level. And so there is an, I think there is an issue that if you're in survival mode, it's very difficult to do trauma work. Trauma work requires the reestablishment of safety, yeah, of a zone of safety or a space of safety. That's what enables us to to do this. And it's true that not everyone has that. Not everyone yeah. has a sense of safety. You know, a homeless person on the street right. is kind of an extreme example of someone who doesn't have a safe space mm -hmm. of their own to even to do the to do the trauma work. That's kind of an extreme example, but. So, you know, the inequities in the human family are also oh, yeah. socioeconomic inequities need to become intolerable. It's just not, we're not going to wake up. We're not going to have shared we spaces if certain people have a huge majority of the resources and other people lack them. Right. And are in a constant survival mode. It's, uh, it's, it's tall order to ask those people to do trauma work. While they're yeah, trying yeah. to, while they're just trying to bare bones survive, there's also these catalyzing events where someone that needs to find those safety, they have to reach an event where it's finding your bottom, basically the addict that finds their bottom. It has to spark. You just go along the status quo until you can't any longer, mm -hmm. and there's sort of a choice. Every addict has different versions of bottom. One person just wakes up with hangovers and says, "I'm." I don't want that anymore. Mm -hmm. And another person gets four DUIs, loses 10 jobs, loses children, loses, goes to prison. There are different bottoms. And so if we were to expand that out into a collective called the US, I'm wondering what our bottom is to where we actually go into recovery. Like when are we going to actually start recovering? And 
whether it's the wildfires of California, whether it's the police shootings that we're seeing with the African-American population, whether it's all of these things that are continuing to happen, when are we going to hit the bottom? And there's a lot of signs, you know, that America's on the decline. We're really, really declining pretty fairly precipitously. And I wonder if that might be one of our wake-up calls, but you never know. And you just... Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is a what you're calling the bottom is close to what I was referring to before as an initiatory crisis. Yes. Yes. Or as a a cauldron, you know, the Mm -hmm. heating up tension of intolerable life circumstances. It's true. I mean, what is the role of life circumstances becoming intolerable collectively at a nationwide level to create a wake up call or create impetus to, to change? We don't know. We're, it's like the future's open, right? We don't mm-hmm. know where the tipping point will be if there is a tipping point toward a conscious, you know, a more general conscious awakening. Yeah. It's a big mystery, but it is a big one. I hear you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> for me and you, you know, it's like, yeah. oh, it's already intolerable. Right. Oh, but, yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't think we were going to talk about politics this much, but it's just sort of went that way. I guess it's the grand we space. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to hit on before we? I mean, we we can go as long as we need or not. Nothing is jumping right now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then let's close by if you're listening to this conversation and you've enjoyed it and you're like, I really want to do this more, you should check out this master's program. It is, I don't know how I got to find such an amazing program. I learned so much in this this program and, and, you know, it's just studying consciousness, not from like a strictly neuroscientific approach, but we actually add in the wisdom of the mystics as well as the neuroscience, as well as psychology. It's this really beautiful synthesis and fusion of these different wisdom traditions. So it's the consciousness and transformative studies program at national university. Any other way that people could find you or that program? They could email me directly, kjenke, J-A-E-N-K-E, K-J-A-E-N-K-E at nu.edu. And you can find the website for the program, as Jared said, at National University Consciousness and Transformative Studies. Uh, that will bring you to the website and uh, to my also to my email address. Yeah, and I think just to say, you know, as we were saying at the beginning, to me, the study of consciousness is compelling in this time because it's this fundamental thing, mm-hmm. you know, this fundamental phenomenon that is more all pervasive than politics or right, left, you know, what's going on in the collective. It's, it's like dropping into what is the elemental reality. And the program tries to examine consciousness, as you said, from many perspectives, you know, philosophical perspectives, psychological perspectives, social, cultural perspectives, uh, really to be a a kind of a multi-lens examination of consciousness. And obviously not just an intellectual undertaking, but also how we work with our own consciousness. Our own consciousness is the primary medium in which we, we work with these concepts. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you for the plug. And yeah, conversation. I loved it. 
I really enjoyed our time together. I always love talking with you, Karen. Thank you so much for coming on and let's do it again sometime. Okay. Thank you. Thank you Beautiful. for the invitation. Uh, you're so welcome. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in this topic and would like to explore it more, you can contact me at jared at jaredandersoncoaching.com, spelled J-A-R-E-D and Anderson with an O. You can also check me out at jaredandersoncoaching.com, where you can book a free discovery session and see what coaching might do for you. I also welcome feedback, so don't hesitate to send me an email with your thoughts on the podcast. And finally, I would invite you to rate and review this podcast. Once again, thanks for listening.